Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Equip You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue talking about uh, biblical sexuality and how it's under attack today. The goal of this episode today is to talk about the sexual revolution and Christian discipleship. The, the basic idea is this. Our culture is discipling us all the time. It's inundating us through a, a multi-pronged attack through, you know, radio and the internet and television. And, you know, we, we could go on and on with this. And the question is, what is discipleship? It's a question that we should ask as we start. And as we do, what Jesus talks about when he talks about discipleship, to be a disciple is to be a learner of Jesus. Now, you can't hardly read the Gospels without Jesus uh, telling us to count the cost and to follow him in all of life. You see this in Luke 9, uh, 23 through 27. Jesus called to the disciples to follow him in all of life. Or at the end of of John 6, uh, Jesus says, are you going to go away too? And Peter says to him, you have the words of eternal life. So there's only one that has the words of eternal life. There's only one who calls us to discipleship, and that is Jesus. And the only way to be formed as a disciple of Christ, to be a learner of him, and to become like him is to be grounded in and shaped by the word of God and with uh, doing life with God's people in the local church. So discipleship is the need of the hour. But we need to understand that our world is offering a form of discipleship. And we need to be clear about this. That out there in the world, there are people who are actively engaging in the idea of evangelizing others and aiming to persuade them of their viewpoint. And you know what? This is really important, especially as we come to talk more about uh, biblical sexuality, because especially in this area, as we've been talking about, you know what? The world wants disciples, and they will do whatever it takes to get you to be a disciple. And the question that we must ask as we continue on is, who is discipling the next uh, generation of followers of Christ in the area of sexuality? Uh, who has discipled you even in this area about biblical sexuality? 
uh, what is sexual discipleship? Now, we're going to talk about that today, but we know that all we have to do is go through the line at the grocery store. All we have to do is listen to the radio or watch TV for even just a second, uh, even watch a television show, um, and we are confronted with this. We live in an age of extreme sensuality, providing us with false and distorted images, views of sexuality that distort the biblical record. Movies and television shows rated only PG-14 display nude and even sex scenes. Whereas in the past, they would have required a rated R, an 18, a 21, or even an MA rating. National media, advertising, music videos, popular songs, they're filled with sensuality and even sensual overtone. Many of these promote infidelity, sexual exploitation, violence, and on and on. According to one study, in college, 1 in 5 women and 1 in 16 men are raped or sexually assaulted while in college from sexual assault and harassment to compulsive pornography use, prostitution to pay tuition, dating violence, sexting, revenge pornography, sex week events that normalize and promote pornography and sexually violent practices, it's clear that sexual exploitation runs today rampant in far too many campuses in America and in our colleges and our universities. In 2017, it was reported that 69% of Americans believe that it's morally acceptable to have sex outside of marriage. On pornography, 64% of young adults are viewing pornography weekly. 90% of boys and 70% of girls have viewed pornography before the age of 18. 88% of the scenes of pornography show violence against women, the NCOSE reports. The U.S. Department of Justice reports this, that never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. And it's not only our children that are being inundated by this, it's adults. They're being discipled by a view of sexuality that runs counter to the biblical record. Biblical sexuality begins with God, who is holy and pure and good. And he tells us what marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And so we need to understand that the sexual revolution that we've talked about, that began even in the 1960s, has continued to create disciples who reject and and purposely reject and want to redefine traditional religious definitions of sexuality and gender. Their belief, access to regular uh, satisfaction outside of the God-ordained bounds between man and woman for life at any time in any way that they would want to be viewed as a basic human right. All one has to do is, is listen to what is talked about on The View at any time on this topic, and it's not hard to find. And what you'll see is they are promoting the view of the world. They want unfettered access at any time to these things. The revolution and the prevailing cultural approach to sexuality have been made possible by postmodern and post 
truth worldviews. These views give humans the, the freedom to define their own reality and their own morality. God's rules or someone else's, else's ethical standards like the churches from the word of God are relevant because I can just create my own reality. I can just do whatever I want morally. Nobody can tell me what to do or what to think. Only I, as the captain of my fate, can decide what is right or wrong for me to express myself sexually. The transgender movement is the ultimate expression of postmodern thought. It even denies the, the biological constraints of male and female. Slattery, on page 22 of his book, says gender becomes something we create in our own thoughts instead of a physical reality to which we must adjust our thinking. Truth is found in what we feel rather than a physical reality. And let's be honest, our postmodern and post-truth society are doing a very effective job at telling us that sexuality is a personal choice and that no one should limit your freedom of sexual expression. Everywhere we turn, we are bombarded with the world's sexual doctrine. It's even impacted Christians and local churches. Christians are following the secular and postmodern trends regarding sexuality. Recent studies even show that 41% of practicing Christians believe that living together outside of marriage between one man and one woman and getting married in a local church under a biblically qualified pastor is a good idea. And more than 60% of Christians on a Christian dating site said they would have sex before marriage. 56% said that it was appropriate to move in with somebody. 32% of Christian men ages 18 to 30 admit that to be enslaved to pornography is a good thing. 54% of Christians believe that homosexuality should be accepted rather than discouraged. Hughes comments, we have been sexually discipled by the world and we have been taught to see sexuality from the world's narrative. He says, sexual immorality has invaded the church and Christians' lives at every level. No age group is untouched. The havoc, the hurt, the pain, the destruction, the sin caused by this goes beyond destroyed lives that that are marked by divorce abortion pornography it goes to the very perversion and the destruction of the christian faith and we must ask where is the church where is the church bought by the blood of the lamb of god jesus christ who is buried and rose again on the third day where is the church you see our our sexuality is a tremendous, it's a beautiful gift from God, but it, it's been so twisted, distorted, even tainted by our culture, our fallenness, our personal experiences. Sexuality is perhaps that aspect of humanity that presents the most pain and the most shame. And yet we keep quiet and we've allowed the world to sexually disciple us and our children and our churches. For far too long, Christianity has not been a safe place for disciples to find help with their sexuality. Everyone seems to be talking about sex, but rather rather rarely do we see it talked about. 
in the confines of the home and the local church. Christians and the church have a long history of avoiding or mishandling topics on sexuality. We did we did not and have not talked enough about sexual enslavement, sexual abuse, sexual dysfunction, sexual identity, or even sexual pleasure in marriage. People were left to their own to figure it out on their own, apart from the help of the local church and their biblically qualified local pastor. Or to seek help from modern psychology, the world, the internet, and school friends who are in the same boat as they are. And when the church has addressed these questions, these struggles, it has often been with a judgmental and a condemning attitude and tone. What I mean is, well, you know what? We're against, let's use an example. We're against not only homosexuality and transgenderism, as we should be because of God's design, but... What we forget to convey is that we are against these ideologies. We are not against the people themselves. But what is often conveyed is, well, you know what? You're against the church and Christians. They're against homosexuality and they're against transgenderism. And so guess what? They're against me because we never say, we're not against you. We want to have this conversation with you about where you're at. We want to talk to you and we want to show you the love of Christ our Savior. And even further, we we tend to divide people into categories uh, of sexually whole, sexually enslaved, the sexually pure, and the sinners. And if you find yourself in the wrong category, the church was the last place you were ever going to seek help. We painted a picture of sexuality as something dirty, something bad, something evil, something ungodly. I I can tell you, as somebody who, you know, I was never I was never gay and I was definitely never transgender, um, but I was enslaved to pornography at one time of my life before I got married. And the Lord graciously convicted me and showed me my error and showed me my sin and convicted me through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and showed me that this was wrong. And I repented, and I've never gone back to it again. But I understand, because, you know what, when I came out, I knew about my my enslavement. I knew that what was going to happen. I knew that any kind of responsibility, as, as is right, was going to be stripped from me. I knew that I was going to be, any respect that I had earned was going to be lost, and there was going to be a lot of, I was going to feel a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And I did, I did share with a pastor once about this, and there was immediate consequences, there was immediate repercussions. And whether there was a walking alongside at that time by that pastor or not, it doesn't matter because that that was uh, over 23 years ago now. But the point is, is I knew that if I told somebody that there was going to be consequences. And what I would say to you is if you're enslaved to pornography, if you're living in, in a homosexual relationship or you're a transgender, I want to urge you to come out to the light that there is help and there's hope in Christ. You know, we often deal with the symptoms of a problem. We never address the root cause, the real problem, which is sin. We, we give a list of sexual do's and don'ts in the church. We tell young people or adults, to, especially young adults, to remain pure before marriage. And when asked why, we're quick to say that, well, because the Bible says so and God commands so. We paint a picture of God as this cosmic spo- spoil sport 
who doesn't want us to enjoy our sexuality. Then why has he created me with sexuality, people ask. But, and we fail to explain why God has given these commands. We need to share the truth in love about God's word. We worship a God who created sex for a purpose. He has communicated his design for sexuality through his word. The Bible tells us that we have everything we need of, to live a life of godliness through Jesus Christ, to live the kingdom life, and that includes our sexuality. And yet, sexual conversations in our culture are happening everywhere except inside the church. And when we're silent, when we cave to the fear of man, or let's be real, we chicken out, or we provide simplistic answers to complicated questions, we only add to the confusion. The birds and the bees talk is no longer sufficient, friends. Sex education in school does not develop a healthy understanding of biblical sexuality. Our kids today, you know what, want to know what they're being taught? They're being taught queer theory and that transgenderism is okay. And that if they've been encouraged in the classroom, if you come to a teacher and you share with them, you're not going to be judged or ridiculed at all. It's normal. It's acceptable. It's taught as one of, if not the only views in our schools, in our country today. We need to have that conversation. And parents, you need to, if you have your kids in, in, a, in a public school, hear me when I say this. You need to be active and you need to be diligent with your child. And you need to talk to your teacher to your, your, your kid's teacher about this. You need to have those conversations. And if you need to pull your child out, pull them out. But, but don't, make, don't make the mistake of thinking, I'm just going to send them to the Christian school down, down the way and you know, I'm going to give them over to the youth pastor and that's it. You know, I'm, I'm going to succeed. Uh, I'm just going to do that and not worry about it. No, whether, they, whether your child goes to a Christian school or they, you send them to the, to the high school youth group or whatever, you, can, you as a parent are responsible for your child before the Lord. And to give your child just over to the youth pastor with no vetting, no follow-up, no, no, uh, no concern for what they're being taught, even at the Christian school. You know what? There is two, I, I'm telling you this, as somebody who looks at and, and keeps up with what the statistics are telling us, whether you're at your local church or you're at a Christian school or you're homeschooling, you as a parent need to get involved. You need to be intentional about this. What's being taught to your child for those eight hours a week or eight hours a day, you know, 40 hours a week, 160 hours or so a, a, a month, tens of uh, hundred, uh, not uh, thousands of hours, if not tens of thousands of hours from kindergarten to their senior year in high school, what is being taught them? And and you should care about that because that's not only your child, but that's the future generation. And not only should you care about it for your child, you should care about it for future generations because you know what? Those are the future leaders of our local churches. Those are the future leaders of our country. Those are the future lawyers, the future doctors. And, and as Christians, we should care about every phase and every stage of society. You know, I'll be honest with you. I don't enjoy talking about this subject because whenever I do, I can tell you for sure that I get a ton of pushback. I get a, I get a ton of pushback more on this topic than I do on any other because there's so much confusion. 
And so many Christians need to get a spine on this topic. We need to stop caving to the culture. In fact, in the church, we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but I'm going to introduce this to you. They, many people who deny the authority and sufficiency of the Bible have been actively trying to rip out parts of the Bible on these very questions so that they don't have to deal with them. We need to be clear that it matters because we believe the word of God. We take it seriously. It is authoritative, it is sufficient, and it is clear. And parents, you need to have these conversations with your child, with your child's school. You need, If you need a homeschool, you homeschool. You, you find a co-op and you care about what's happening there as well and what's being taught them. The church needs to have a conversation about these things for the sake not only of the present generation of followers of Christ, but future generations as well. And let's be clear, the church must be a safe place where people can talk about their sexual questions, any question, any hurt, any struggle, any pain, any failure. The church should be a safe place to confess, to repent, to find love, redemption, forgiveness, and hope and healing in Jesus Christ alone. The sexual crisis, the problem today, is not the LGBTQT plus agenda or even the widespread use of enslavement to pornography. These are symptoms of a greater problem and the challenge that we have. The, the, the challenge is how do we think biblically about gender and sexuality? What is God's design for our gender, for our sexuality. And we see this. We see a tidal wave of confusion about biblical sexuality and biblical gender roles and how it's swept over our culture. And it's only going to be wor- get worse. Romans 1 tells us that God will give people over because this is a matter of worship. God created us for worship. Uh, The Westminster uh, Catechism tells us in question one that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the heart of worship. We were created to worship God, period. And worshiping outside of the confines of of what God has said, that's false worship. And what we see is as, as our culture has moved away from biblical sexuality and biblical gender norms. What we're seeing is sexual abuse, enslavement, shattered sexual identities. Shame has grown in every way. We need mature Christians who are rooted in God's unchanging truth, his word, who will say the truth about biblical sexuality and biblical generals, but will also point people in love to the truth from the word about Jesus Christ. We are called to disciple one another in every single way. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to Obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. She teaches them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's everything in the word. That means everything. That includes what our Lord and his word teaches about sexuality. That's not excluded. Our primary work is to make disciples who who follow, obey, exalt as Lord and creator and savior of every aspect of our lives, including sexuality and marriage. So we need to have frank conversations 
about these things. And we need to understand that the, the scripture has a lot to say about this. We must talk about sexuality to teach people, to show them how to submit every area of their lives to the Lordship of Christ, including our sexuality. 1 Corinthians 10.31 and 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, and you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. We must be rooted and growing mature in our faith in God's truth so that we're not swayed by the culture and its views about sexuality, as Ephesians 4.13-15 says. Sexual discipleship is to believe, to live, and teach a model, a lifestyle where God's truth is applied to our sexuality. We need to help our, our teens, our youth, our young adults, all believers, to understand why biblical purity matters, to understand the underlying spiritual importance and implications of biblical sexuality and morality in general. We must help them to know what to do when they sin or if they've sinned already. We must help them to understand that purity is going to be a lifelong struggle, even after marriage. Marriage is not a magic bullet that solves everything. We should be willing to discuss these things. It's time to stand up and to stand on God's power as revealed in his word because his word is truth. You know, the Christian church in the West has, has, uh, has, a, has honest, let's be honest, it faces a set of challenges that exceed anything that has, it has experienced in the past. There's the revolution of ideas, one that is, entri- uh, is transforming, I should say, the entire moral structure and the meaning of life, these challenges would be vexing enough for any generation. But the contours of our current challenge have to be understood over and against those affecting the reality for virtually everything on the American landscape. And furthermore, in the West, this revolution, like all revolution, uh, takes prisoners. They want people to be enslaved to their worldview, so they will not question it. In other words, it demands total acceptance of its revolutionary claims and its affirmations. This is the challenge that now confronts every Christian who is committed to what the Bible says as the word of God and to the gospel as the only message of salvation. The scale and the scope of this challenge are even made clear by the British theologian Theo Hobson. As Hobson acknowledges, churches have always faced difficult moral issues and they have muddled, though. Some will argue that the challenge of the sexual revolution and the normalization of homosexuality are nothing new. They're just, you know, that's that's the reality that we are in. But Hobson says, until quite recently, I would have agreed. But he also says, it, it becomes ever clear that the issue of homosexuality is really different. And so he suggests that the first reason is what he recognized as either a either-or quality of the new morality. There is no middle ground in terms of the church's engagement with these hard and with these urgent issues. Churches will either affirm the legitimacy of same-sex relations and behaviors, or they will not. You know what? It's not enough to just have a, a statement that you're not going to marry homosexuals and and transgender people. You need to be teaching from these things, from the Word of God, and being faithful to what the Word of God says. And the churches that do not take a stand, not just have a document about it, but do not teach on it, and do not stand and practice what Scripture says about this, uh, uh, on the basis of a claim that God's revealed, we need to stand, I should say, take a stand on the basis of a claim 
that God has revealed a morality to his human creatures in the scripture. Hobson also suggests, secondly, what he calls the sheer speed of the homosexual cause of success. As he says, something that was assumed for centuries to be unspeakably immoral has emerged as an alternative form of life, an identity that merits legal protection. The demand for gay equality has basically ousted traditional sexual morality from the moral high ground. That is really important. And Hobson is arguing that this revolution, and like any other, has turned the tables on Christianity in Western civilization. The church has always enjoyed the moral high ground. It's always been understood as the guardian of what is right and what is righteous, at least in Western society. But what we're now seeing is a fundamental change here. Hobson is arguing that this moral revolution, having turned the tables on Christianity, now robs the Christian church of any moral high ground it had previously claimed. The situation is fundamentally reversed. For the first time in the history of Western civilization, Christianity appears to be on the underside of morality, and those who hold the biblical teachings regarding human sexuality are now ousted, to use Hobson's word, from the position of the moral high ground. And not only that, but they're told, you know what? You, you are intolerant if you have this view. And so you're not allowed to be heard by, uh, in society in the free marketplace of ideas if you hold these views. You are shouted down. You are treated as if you are the dumbest, and I, or, or to use the Bible, you are treated as if you're a fool in our society today. But let's ask a question. When hasn't the truth mattered and doesn't the first amendment in the united states truly matter anymore because in the in in the first amendment we have the everyone has the right of free speech nobody has the right to shout one another down every single person it has the right to speak their mind in the marketplace of ideas and then to have those ideas evaluated and yet what's happening today is we're seeing that evaluation of, of ideas be eroded. And those who do evaluate ideas, those who do use critical thinking, as, as we're taught in school to do, uh, are shouted down. And it's not, because, it's not because the other side has the better argument. They don't. They don't have the science. They don't have the argument. The problem is, is we're engaging in a very real war, Christians. And people are, people are enslaved to their sin. They have neither eyes to hear nor or ears to hear the truth. And we need to be praying as we're speaking, as we're sharing the truth in love. Yes, we need to deal with arguments. We need to present evidence. We need to show people from Scripture what the Bible says. And it's not just the practice of losing its aura of immorality or as with premarital sex or illegitimacy. Instead, the case for sexual equality takes the form of a moral crusade. Those who want to uphold the old attitude are not just dated moralists, as as with the case with those who want to uphold the old attitude of premarital sex or, or legitimacy. They're accused of moral deficiency. The old taboo surrounding this practice does not disappear. It bounces back at those who seek to uphold it. Such a sharp turnaround is without parallel in moral history. And so Hobson's main point is that homosexuality has the power to turn the moral tables. And so what was previously understood to be immoral is now celebrated as a moral good. As a result, the Christian church's historical teachings on homosexuality shared by the vast majority of citizens of the West until very recently 
is now understood to be a relic of the past and even a repressive force that must be re- eradicated. Even the suggestion, as we'll talk about uh, this month, uh, towards the middle of the month, when we talk about the authority of Scripture, it's, it's a common view out there. You know what? That's just your view. Just just keep that view in, in your back pocket. Keep it in your home and don't tell me in the public square about it because I'm already convinced. But at the same time, here's the interesting thing. I, the, our world, our culture is going to tell us, this is what I think, and they're going to be making disciples. So as long as that's the case, I can tell you, I hear at Servants of Grace and in many other ministries, they're going to keep speaking up about these things. We're going to keep pointing out the hypocrisy and the double standard because it matters. It matters that we go into the public square and we speak the truth in love from the word of God. It matters that we stand on these things. And I can tell you that I'm not going to back down. It's not a pride thing. It's not a pound my chest thing. It's a concern because people are people who are actively promoting this view are dead in their trespasses and sins. And speaking the truth in love is an act of love. It's an act of compassion. It's it's not to point the finger and say, you know what? You're a worse sinner than me. It's to say, you know what? But for the grace of God, go I. It's to say, apart from the righteousness of God, that would be me. And that should be our posture. That And that's our message. We have real hope. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, we can say that that at the heart of all of this discussion is is with the moral revolution, they are trying to shake the very foundation of our society and to change it and reshape it. And isn't that what discipleship does? And and we must understand that this revolution might be a new thing. Its roots, though, are not recent. As a matter of fact, the church has seen this sexual revelation taking place for the last century. What What now becomes clear is that most Christians vastly underestimate the challenge presented from the sexual revolution, and they are catching up on how to speak to it. The confessing church must now be willing to be a moral minority if that's what the times demand. But we must speak up. The church has no right to follow the secular siren call towards moral revisionism and moral relativism and politically correct positions on issues of the day. Whatever the issue, the church must speak as the church. That is the community of redeemed saints by the grace of God who stand under the divine authority of the word. The concern of the church is not to know its own mind, but to know and to follow the mind of God as revealed in the word. The church's convictions must not emerge from the ashes of our own fallen wisdom, but to stand on what the church has taught about the word of God which reveals the wisdom of God and the demands of God. The church must awaken to its status as a moral minority and even hold fast to the gospel it has been entrusted to preach. That means that we must abandon worldliness. We must abandon apathy about these things. We must abandon the fear of man. We must speak up about these things. And when people come in, we must, to our churches, we must love them and care for them and walk along, be willing to walk alongside of them. You know, friends, there is a lot to say about this. And I know that this episode is heavy. But we need to be clear about this. Our culture is aiming to disciple us sexually. All you have to do is look at what's published uh, or put out there, excuse me, on the television. You go through the grocery store. You look at video games. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming. 
Our culture is trying to disciple us. And so we must be clear about biblical discipleship. Jesus calls us as his own to be his disciples, to be his students, to be his pupils, to be a learner of him, and to count the cost of following him in all of life in Luke 9, 23 through 27. In John 16, 33, Jesus says this, that in this world you'll have tribulation. Paul, speaking to Timothy, tells Timothy that you can expect to face tribulation in hard times. The books of 1 Peter and 2 Peter and Hebrews and on and on, they were all written to people who were facing persecution. Hebrews tells us about a superior, the, superior, the superiority of the sufficiency of Christ over all things and over all of life. And so these things matter. These questions, these issues that our culture have, we they have answers. They have answers in the Word of God. The Word of God is authoritative, it is clear, and it is sufficient, and it's binding on our lives. Some people say that the Bible's morality is outdated and we don't need it anymore. But show me a society from history that hasn't up that that has rejected the biblical worldview on on sexuality and gender and the like. And I'll show you a society that has crumbled. I'll show you one. Look at Rome. What happened when Rome continued down its path of degradation? It crumbled within itself. Because when you destroy the institution of marriage between one man and one woman for life, what are you going to have that replaces it? How are you going to have children? How are you going to have a society? This is where we're headed today. We're headed to a society where even children will be minimized. All in the favor of my rights and my speech and my thinking. But you know what? Children do matter in the eyes of God. Scripture tells us that Children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a blessing from God. They are not an opponent of God. They are a blessing from God. And that God blesses the womb and he forms life, Psalm 139, in the womb. And so we are for life, in to be for life from the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between. And that matters as well here. It matters that we speak up and that we talk about these things. And not just about sexuality, but about morality, about ethics, about everything. Friends, brothers and sisters, maybe you're realizing the time to cower in fear is over. The time to repent of the fear of man is now. The time to repent of your apathy. You might say, I don't have a show, Dave. I don't have a voice. I don't have a platform. Can I say that something to you? It might be shocking to you. You know what? All of this, all of the various shows that I do, the books that I write, the shows that I go on, as far as I'm concerned, they could all go away. And if we would focus on our local church and being faithful there, that would be enough, period. If we would do life with one another, if we would get into each other's lives and ironing, sharpening iron, doing life with one another, and going out into our local churches, going out from our local churches, and speaking the truth in love, my argument is, is that you really want to make a difference? Yes, having a large platform and a large voice can give you an ability to make a difference in a large way. If used in an appropriate way and pointing people to truth, the truth of scripture and to the glory of Christ in the word. But I think that the most effective way to be faithful for a homeschool mom, for a sing, for a single dad, a husband and a wife, is not to have a podcast. It's to get their kids and a bib and themselves in a biblically solid local church, and to do life 
with others who are being shaped and formed by the preached word of God, that they are studying and that they're growing in and that they're growing in handling and skill so that when they go out into their respective vocations and the like, they're carrying forth the light of the glory of Christ to a perishing world. And how about, as Rosaria recently said uh, on this podcast and in my interview with her, how about we try boldness? How about we try boldness? And, And boldness is not fear. Boldness is not an opponent of meekness. Remember, meekness is power under control. Speaking boldly means that we we are speaking out of a place, from a place, in God, a trust and reliance in God's word. And so we speak out of concern and out of love for people and for the honor of God and the glory of God and for the good of others that they might see and know and savor and taste and see that, yes, the Lord is good. And that the Christian worldview and at its heart the christian discipleship view that scripture teaches is good it's not against me this is why this is why you know what jesus says in this world you're gonna have tribulation because people have people that are advocating the view that we've talked about this cultural discipleship this sexual revolution they are wanting to make disciples who will not question and who will just blindly follow them. Christian discipleship is the opposite. Jesus doesn't say in the great commandment to to lay outside your mind to become a Christian. He says in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is why the Christian tradition, why we, why we started universities, why we started colleges, why we started orphanages and the like. Our society forgets that. Without the Christian worldview, we wouldn't have schools. We wouldn't have universities. We wouldn't have orphanages. We wouldn't have hospitals. We wouldn't have a whole host of the things that we have today. We wouldn't have religious liberty. And and I mean, I could go on and on and on with that. What the Christian worldview does is it upholds the freedom of conscience our ability to think rationally and rightly from the word of God about creation, about the thing that, that, that the world in which God made and he created and, and about ourselves and about how he made us to be a man is to be a man and a woman is to be a woman. And these things matter. It matters that we speak up about these things. And it, and it, and it, you know, as I record this episode and it, and it goes up in June, this is pride month. You know, there's there's uh, Proverbs 15 tells us that there's seven things the Lord hates. And you know, one of those things that the Lord hates is pride. And it's interesting because the opposite of pride is humility. And you know what? The Lord tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6 to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humility, Calvin and Augustine said, is the Christian life. They were asked, what is the Christian life? Humility, humility, humility. And what is humility? It's recognizing who our God is and who we are in light of God. And it shows us not only our need, but it shows us how we should posture our hearts before the cross. None of us are better than another. All of us are in need of the grace of God in Christ. For the non-Christian, that means that what you need the most is Jesus Christ. And what you need the most, he offers you because he he said in John 19.30, it is finished. It is signed. It is sealed in the blood of our God. He paid the penalty for you on the cross. And he was buried. And he rose again. He is now 
the mediator of the new covenant. He is now our intercessor. He is now our, he is our king. He's our soon returning king. There's no other form of discipleship that God honors, that God blesses, that by which you can be shaped and molded by. All others are false. All others are false forms of discipleship. That's why the real need of the day is to proclaim the truth about discipleship, the truth about the demands of discipleship. And as you look at the Gospels, when Jesus talked about the counting the cost, people left. People left. People today are going to not pay attention to us. They're going to minimize the truth as we proclaim in love from a heart motivated by love. The glory of our King and of our Christ, they're going to reject it. They're going to reject the message. They're going to reject us, and they might even shout us down and ridicule us and persecute us. That's why we need to stand. That's why we need to use whatever platform we have, whether that's a small one or a large megaphone. All of us, this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. And we speak in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Paul tells us that we are to make an appeal to men to be reconciled to God. Maybe you're listening to this and you realize, you know what? The world has discipled me for far too long. I've been discipled by the world. I am not a disciple of Christ. At the heart, I am selfish. I can tell you now, uh, it was about 2005 when the Lord convicted me of my enslavement to pornography. And at that time, I can tell you, I was living for Dave Jenkins. The Holy Spirit came along And as he often does, I started thinking about some things in my life and how I was living. And I was thinking, here I am, I'm a Christian, and I'm living contrary to the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin, graciously, kindly, pointed me to Christ. Maybe that's you today as you are listening to this, as you're watching this. You realize that you were like me, that you were living for yourself and for your own honor and for your own praise. I can tell you that The Lord Jesus is good. What he desires is for you to be a child of God. Jesus, when he got up to preach for the first time in Luke 4, what did Jesus do there? He opened the scroll and preached from Isaiah 61. What is Isaiah 61 about, you say? It's about freedom for the captives. The very first sermon from the mouth of the Son of God and the Son of Man was a message of freedom for the captive. And maybe that's you today. You're captive to your sin. And what Jesus has come to do is he's come to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Maybe today you're you're struggling in a variety of ways. You're struggling with worldliness. You're struggling with the world and the flesh and the devil, as John says in 1 John 2. And what you need to understand is that the world, flesh, and the devil, they're aiming for you. They're aiming for your discipleship. They want to distract you. They want to distort discipleship. They want to minimize it. They want even, even as we saw in the early 2000s, they want a conversation about discipleship to happen, but they want that discipleship to be divorced from the word of God. Friends, there is no discipleship without scripture. If we minimize scripture, if we reject scripture, if we marginalize scripture, that is not discipleship. Jesus, when he was before in Matthew 4, when he was before Satan, he didn't rely on his own power, even though he very could have, well could have as the son of God and the son of man. Instead, he said, it is written. What did Satan want to do? He wanted to pervert the word of God. He quoted it and then he perverted. He wrongly implied it. Beware of those who wrongly handle the word of God. Second Timothy 2.15 tells us to rightly handle the word of God. That is to cut it 
Literally, the meaning there is to cut it straight. And it is not enough to just rightly interpret the Bible. We must rightly apply the Bible by the grace of God with the help of the Spirit. That's why we need one another. This is not a project for just us. This is not just one voice that's needed. This is all hands on deck. And we need to speak the truth in love. We need to get ourselves grounded and shaped by the word personally as we're reading and studying and meditating on the Bible. We need to be doing light for the God's people in our local churches. We need to be hearing and studying the word. That's why your pastor should be preaching expository sermons verse by verse, line by line. And yes, as they do, they're going to come to topics like we're talking about today. And this is not a personal attack. This is not, this is about the truth. This is about being concerned about the where the church is going. This is about our mission, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, to make disciples who make disciples of Christ. Because our world is making disciples, make no mistake about it. But God is making disciples. And in Matthew 18, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not overcome the church. That's good news because the church's mission, that means, will, can never be thwarted. It might be hindered. There might be distractions. There might be potholes along the way. But the mission of our king will not be thwarted. It cannot be thwarted because behind the mission of the church is its king, is its lord, is its master. G- and, and, excuse me. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that the church is blameless. The bride of Christ bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That's good news. That means that we are to stand on the word of God. And let's do that. And let's ourselves be molded and shaped by the word. And may and may we do life with one another in our local churches. Well, friends, there's a lot to say about this. And really, we're going to come back to this about how our culture is shaping us uh, sexually, morally, ethically on this show. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you and thank you for tuning in to the Equip You and Grace podcast. Until next time, God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.